Good morning, everybody. I hope you can hear me okay. I always get worried about these microphones. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Today, we continue our series about people meeting Jesus, conversations in John's Gospel. We met Nicodemus, the woman at the well in Samaria, the blind man healed by Jesus, and now the Jews in the temple. I was tempted to subtitle this episode as Great Expectations, but having never read Charles Dickens' novel, I thought that might be a wee bit presumptuous. But we all have expectations, don't we? How things will turn out for ourselves, for our family, our children, our grandchildren. What will happen from day to day? We probably even have expectations about what a Prime Minister should look like. But did anyone foresee a stocky figure with blonde to fair hair that sticks out all over the place? <laughs> Unable to speak a sentence without breaking it up in all the wrong places for special emphasis? <laughs> and with a lovely British name like Boris? <laughs> or that the Scottish Government would be run by someone who is his major opponent in the devolved nations? A wee lass from Irvine of all places. Mind you, I wouldn't like to take her on in an argument if I was a, one of her employees. Come to think of it, health is, is a devolved responsibility, and I work for the NHS. So she is my employer. I better watch out. We all have expectations about what's going to come out of the COP26 summit, but will our expectations match the reality? And did we have any expectations of a major viral pandemic two years ago, causing major disruption to our lives, working from home, lockdown, wearing masks in shops and even in church? Unless you're preaching, of course. So, who wants to see things get back to normal? Raise your hands. It's all right, you're not in school, and I know you won't all go to the toilet at the same time. Who thinks there will be a new normal? And what will it look like? No, you don't need to answer that one because you'll all have your own ideas and we'll all disagree. People's expectations are at the heart of today's passage. What they expected, what fitted their preconceptions, what their ideas of God and his Messiah were, what they thought of Jesus. But let's go back a bit. As Gordon has pointed out very usefully before, because I had never realised it, John manages to say a lot with very few words. Verse 22, then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. As far as I know, this is the only mention of the festival of dedication in the Bible, as it really relates to Jewish history of events between the two testaments. And it had some religious significance, but it had far more to do with Israel as a nation. So, what was the festival of dedication? What was being dedicated? And what do we call it today? Anybody know? Any primary school teachers, retired or otherwise, who might know? Morag? It's Hanukkah, yep, or the festival of light, held in late December. As John says, it was winter. 
Actually, a day maybe not unlike today. Because winter in Jerusalem was maybe 5 to 12 degrees centigrade. Average rainfall about 46 millimetres. Warmer and not as wet as East Kilbride, but cold if you used to temperatures in the 30s during the summer. Two other hints to the, to the weather. Jesus was walking in Solomon's Colonnade. Now this isn't Solomon's Colonnade, but it's a picture of an ancient building. And when you look at pictures like this, it's very easy to miss one detail. Can you tell what it is? The roof, exactly. Most pictures miss out the roof. So Jesus was walking around in a sheltered area and the Jews were gathered around him, suckling him, huddling close beside him. But there's more to it than that. The festival of dedication. Dedication of what? Well, it was really more a rededication, a rededication of the second temple. You'll remember that the original temple was built by Solomon. It was a splendid affair with loads of beautiful carvings, wood, gold. It showed off the greatness and power of the God of Israel, the greatness and power of the Israelites, as long as they remained faithful to God. Well, that didn't last long. So it was then destroyed by the Babylonians. It was rebuilt years later into a much smaller degree by King Joash. But in 168 BC, it was desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes of the Seleucid Empire. And it was used for pagan worship. Three years later, there was a Jewish uprising led by Judas Maccabeus, who was pronounced king and whose family line reigned for some hundred years until the Roman Empire took over. And Judas Maccabeus restored the temple, then dedicated it, like Solomon, for the worship of God. This event was commemorated at the Festival of Dedication, which became a festival of remembrance of the dedication of the temple, of the Jewish nation as a people of God, and a time of national celebration. But of course, Judah wasn't a great nation now, under Roman rule, an even greater insult to national pride. And the temple was a mere shadow of what it once was, as was the Jewish nation under their great kings, David and Solomon. So they wanted their greatness and their power back, their position in the world order restored. And that's why they looked for God's chosen one, the Messiah, to restore their former glory and position. So again, John sums up things in a word that he uses with two meanings. It was winter, their winter of discontent. Jesus is walking in the temple precincts, the focus for all the desires and expectations. Indeed, in a part of the temple which goes back to the original temple of Solomon. And the Jews are desperate to get him to say if he's the promised Messiah. So they can stir up an army and, and uh, with him at their head to clear out these hated Romans and restore pride and position to the nation. But he doesn't live up to their expectations. He wasn't even of the priestly or royal family. He wasn't from Jerusalem. 
He was from a, a country boy, a carpenter from a wee village up north called Nazareth, 64 miles away. Even Nathaniel, one of the, the apostles, had said, Nazareth, can anything good come out of there? You could imagine the reaction of the establishment in Edinburgh if someone from Glasgow tried to tell them how to do things and what to do. Even less a wee last from, from Irvine on the Ayrshire coast, which just happens to be 64 miles from the capital. Well, they'd obviously been talking about him a great deal. He was the centre of attraction. There was uncertainty and speculation. They wanted a statement, preferably signed and sealed. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. For a variety of reasons, Jesus doesn't tell them in so many words. Not least because what he did not want was an uprising. His time had not yet come. It wasn't time for the final showdown yet. He invites them to draw their own conclusions. I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I did tell you, said Jesus, not explicitly, but by the works and the miracles he performed, by the whole manner of his life. His deeds were the evidence, evidence of divine origin but they couldn't see it. What was wrong was not the evidence, but that they had closed minds. He didn't conform to their preconceived ideas about the Messiah. They did not belong to him. Jesus said, you are not my sheep. Perhaps better translated as, you are not my flock. Or as, or as in the parable of the sower, they were like the footpath on which the seed cannot take root. Or as Jesus said in Matthew 13, 13, though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. Fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah 6, verses 9 and 10. They were worse off than the blind man of last week's service. They were both deaf and blind to his message. So they tried to stone him for blasphemy, for claiming to be God. But he hadn't. He said he was God's son, a lesser title, deliberately. So he asked, for which of these many good works from the Father do you stone me? And then there's this odd, inter odd interlude about, I have said you are God's. This is a quotation from Psalm 82.6. But Jesus is still having a dig at them here. It's worth reading the whole of this short psalm, for it relates to judges and rulers, to those in power, but not in a good light, and says much of what Jesus often accused them of. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. 
How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. The gods know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods. You're all sons of the Most High. But you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God. Judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. A bit of judgment there for them as well, because they would have known all of this psalm and realised what Jesus was actually saying about them. And listen to verse 8 again. Rise up, O God, judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. All the nations, not just Israel. There are at least three important messages from this passage. First, despite all the arguments, Jesus wasn't getting through to them. He told the parable of the farmer sowing the seed for good reason. Similarly, he quoted the prophecy of Isaiah. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. Their minds were shut. They didn't want to hear. This wasn't the Messiah they were looking for. He didn't match up to their expectations. How often in our church family do we hear members bemoaning the fact that their spouses, children, friends have not accepted Jesus as their saviour, always with a feeling of guilt that they should have done more, should have said more, prayed more, shown more. It's all our fault. But we should remember that Jesus didn't always get his message across. Not everyone accepted him as saviour and lord, as God's son. Why, they even turned on him and had him crucified. The passage calls his hearers Jews, not Pharisees, scribes, teachers of the law, although I'm sure there would have been some of them there. These were ordinary people, unsure of what to make of him, and he couldn't get through. Our task is to spread God's good news in Jesus, but it's the Spirit's work thereafter. Some people are not for saving. Their minds are made up close to the good news. We can only sow the seed, not necessarily see it through to harvest. Secondly, Jesus makes a number of statements and claims in this passage. Verse 30, I and the Father are one. Verse 36, I am God's son. Verse 38, the Father is in me and I in the Father. How much clearer did he have to make for him? He didn't mean we're the same person, but our identity is the same. We share the same mind and purpose. As he says in John 14 verse 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Look and see what God is like. If you can't believe the words, at least look at the actions. We share God's message, God's love, by what we do, by how we live, as much as by what we say. Could we say, anyone who has seen us 
has seen the Father? Do we show love and especially forgiveness? As you'll see in the front of your update, living the Lord's way, loving the Lord's people, sharing the Lord's message, all go together. If God's Spirit lives within us, it's not a Sunday thing, it's an all-of-life event. And finally, Jesus again refers to the sheep and thereby to himself as a shepherd, an illustration he often used. The earlier part of John chapter 10 is about the good shepherd and the sheep, and Jesus returns to it here. We sang, The Lord's my shepherd, a psalm of David, the shepherd king. But actually where David puts himself in the position of the sheep, and again, this illustration is all a reminder to Jesus' hearers of the great times for Israel, but a reminder that their greatest king started out as a shepherd, looking after the sheep, as Jesus claims to do here. Verse 27, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. With all the pictures of one man and his dog that we see in the telly, we're used to see the, the image of the shepherd driving the sheep forward. But that's not how it worked in those days. The shepherd didn't drive them on. He led, and they followed at his voice. He was their leader, looking out for danger or problems, going first where they had to follow. The sheep's security was in the power of the shepherd. He ruled over them. Jesus was saying, in effect, that his hearers, the Jews, were untrustworthy as shepherds. Indeed, they weren't even part of the flock. They weren't his or his father's. And note the promise to the sheep, verse 28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Give. Not a promise for the future, but for here and now. A life transformed. Is that what you want? And if not, why not? Jesus made it as plain as he could by his actions as well as his words that he was God's son, the Messiah, but they didn't want to know. Even he couldn't get through to them. They were not of his flock. But as the good shepherd of the sheep, he promised eternal life. He promised protection, leadership, direction, fullness of life. Then came this festival of dedication in Jerusalem. As we share in communion together for the first time together in a long time, will you dedicate or rededicate your lives again to Jesus, our risen Saviour? How do we respond to Jesus? Are we willing to take up our cross and follow him? Does he lead our lives? Does he protect us, guide us, fill us with his spirit? Will he live up to our expectations? And will we live up to his? Amen. <laughs>